Now he says all that's in the world. And here are the three things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh. There's so many things that appeal to the flesh. And it's the same temptation that Satan brought to Eve, that the tree was good for food. If you were hungry, it was a good place to eat, by the way. And one of the things that's condemned in Scripture, of course, is gluttony. And there are other sins of the flesh, this overemphasis today on sex, both in the church and out of the church. I think that is quite obvious today. Now, the very interesting thing is, this is the same kind of temptation that Satan brought to the Lord Jesus. You remember he said to him, you've been fasting for 40 days, you're hungry because you're a man as well as God. Now, he says, why don't you turn the stones into bread? Now, he could have done it. The difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and myself is, if I could turn stones into bread, I suspect I'd be doing that. But he didn't because of the fact that he was being tested in that same area. And you and I are being tested today in that area also. The desires of the flesh. It's not that we are not being tested. We are. And there's no sin in being tested in this area at all. There's nothing wrong in looking in a window and seeing delicious food. But the thing that would be wrong if you became a glutton, the same thing would apply to that of sex. It would apply to any realm of the flesh to satisfy the desires of the flesh. And then he said, the lust of the eyes. Naive saw that the tree was good to look at. And you remember, Satan showed the Lord Jesus Christ all the kingdoms of this world. And let me tell you, they're very attractive. And today, there is a godless philosophy that's trying to get control of the world. And there will come a day when an Antichrist will arise. We're going to talk about him in this particular chapter here. In fact, in the next verse or two, we'll be talking about Antichrist. He's coming to rule this world for Satan. And this is an attractive world that you and I live in, with all of its display, with all of its pageant, with all of its human glory, and all of that is attached to it. And then the pride of life. Now, what is the pride of life? Well, Eve saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You know, today, a great many people like to pride themselves on their family. I come from a very old family, and they pride themselves upon the fact they belong to a certain race. I think that there are several races that are very proud of that. That was the appeal Hitler made to the German people, of course. And it's appeal, I think, to any race today, and I don't care what race it is. But actually, that is a pride of life. It is that which makes you feel superior to somebody else. And it's in religion today. I meet some saints. They feel like they're super-duper saints. They feel like, as one man said to me, he said, Maya, I'm for your Bible study. In fact, he's given to our program to help get it out. 
He says, I just know a lot of people that listen to it, and they need it. But he very frankly told me, he says, I don't listen to it. And the point was, he didn't need it. He felt like he just had arrived. He was a very mature saint. And that, of course, proves that he's very immature when he even talks like that. She saw it was to be desired to make one wise. Now, you remember that Satan took the Lord Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Just cast yourself down, and there will be a great many people there to see it. They would witness this. It was probably during a feast time. And you cast yourself down, and believe me, you'll demonstrate that you are superior. Lord Jesus never performed a miracle in order to demonstrate that. May I say to you that these are the three appeals that are made to you and me today. And it leads to the most distorted view of life that anyone can possibly have when we make our tummy our goal in life or when we attempt to make beauty as the goal of life or we attempt to make that even which is religious the goal of life. Those things become deadly and they are of the world and we're told that we're not to love these things because God does not love them and he intends to destroy this world system. He's made that very clear. Now he explains the reason. Verse 17, The world passeth away, and the lust of it. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I think of two things in this connection. I always enjoy going to England and visiting. Well, I like to go down to the Tower, the London Tower. I enjoy that. I enjoy going visiting the castles like Tewkesbury Castle, Warwick Castle. I like to go to Hampton Court and Windsor and Canterbury. I enjoy going to these places because most of us have ancestors that came from over there. But I want to tell you that these folk that were our ancestors, they were a bloody brutal and vain and worldly people. And all you have to do is go into Hampton Court and see how Henry VIII took it away from Cardinal Wolsey. He's the one that built it. Old Cardinal Wolsey, when he died, he said, if I'd only served my God like I served my king, I wouldn't be here today. Wouldn't have been in the situation he was in. And Henry VIII, my, how he could eat. And when he got tired of a wife, he just sent her to the tower, and they beheaded her. And he had several of them. But go and look at all of that today. The world passeth away. And many of us today, I look back at when I was a young man, and I wish somehow or another I could reach back there and claim some of those days and some of the strength that I had then and use it for God, which I did not do at that day. The world's passing away. And then I like to go and look at other places, go to the tower. What a story is told there, bloodshed, but of also of the pride of life and the lust of the flesh 
and the lust of the eye. Oh, how beautiful Windsor and Hampton Court were. The flowers that even the arrangement was made by Wren, the wonderful architect that built St. Paul's. May I say to you, there is a glory that belongs to all of that. But you know, it's already passed away, and England is just a third-rate power today in the world. Now, it may not even be a third-rate power at all. All of that has passed away, and the lust of it. Where is the lust of Henry VIII today? Well, in one of those tombs over there. And just think of all the glory that's buried in Westminster. All of that has passed away. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Why don't you work at something today, friends, that's permanent, something that has stability about it, something that's going to last for a long time? This is a tremendous section that we're in. Now he introduces another sensational subject. And he says again in verse 18 here, he says, Little children, it is the last time. Little children. And here we have again this expression. And little children, it's the last time. And the word that's translated little children here is just a little different from the word that's translated little children back in verse 12. There it was a term of affection and implies all that are born into God's family, God's little born ones, little barns as the Scottish term is, all his dear children. But these dear children, as we've seen, are of different degrees of spiritual experience. And they're divided into three classes. Fathers at the top, they're young men, and they're little babies. Now he's talking here to the little babies again. These are the little babies. They haven't grown up yet. They're passing through this world, and the chances are they've been tripped up by one of these three things that cause Christians to be tripped up. Now he says, little children, it's the last time. You and I are living, actually, in the last days here on the earth. It's been the last time for a long time. This is the age in which he's calling out a people to his name. And you could say at any time during this period, now is the acceptable time. Today, if you'll hear his voice. Why that? Why the urgency about salvation? Because, friends, you might not be here tomorrow. I might not be on this radio tomorrow. It just might be we won't be around. So it's important for me to give out the Word. It's important for you to hear the Word. Now we have brought before us here Antichrist. Listen to him. Little children, it's the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many... Antichrist, by which we know that it is the last time. Now, many Antichrists had already appeared, but there is coming the Antichrist. Now, what do you mean by Antichrist? And I think that this word has been misunderstood, and as a result, 
the person who's coming is misunderstood. And I'm going to run ahead here for just a few moments to look at this. Antichrist is made up of two words, a preposition, anti, and also Christ. Here it's very important to see that anti has two meanings. It can mean against. Anti, we think of it as meaning against something. I'm anti-something. Well, that means I'm against something. And then anti can also mean instead of. It can be a substitute, therefore. It can be a very good substitute or just a subterfuge for something. It means in place of, an imitation of. So the question arises, is Antichrist a false Christ or is he an enemy of Christ? Where is the emphasis placed? Now here in 1 John, and there are several references to it, I read again. Little children, it's the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, by which we know that it is the last time. Now, the only thing that we can arrive at from this statement is that there is going to be an Antichrist, but already in his day, that is John's day, there were many Antichrists. Now, what was the thing that identified an Antichrist? Well, it was one who denied the deity of Christ, and that's the primary definition of Antichrist that we have in 1 John, because we'll pick that up when we get down to verse 22. And I think probably I'll run a little farther ahead and say this, that that is the emphasis here. But you will recall that the Lord Jesus said, Many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Antichrist, instead of Christ. They'll claim to be Christ. Now, I personally believe that there are going to be two persons at the end of the age that will fulfill both of these types. There will be, and Scripture presents it that way, in the 13th chapter of Revelation, and I'm running ahead now, you have a beast, a wild beast that comes out of the sea, and Satan is the one that calls him forth. That is the political ruler, and he is definitely against Christ. Now there's a second beast. He comes out of the land, and he appears to be a lamb, but he's a wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing. He pretends to be Christ, who is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He will be a religious ruler. The political rulers coming out of the Gentile world, the former Roman Empire. And the religious ruler will come out of the nation Israel. They wouldn't accept him as their Messiah unless he did. So that you have actually two that fulfill this term, Antichrist, and he's coming, I probably ought to say they're coming at the end of the age, and both of them can be called Antichrist, one against Christ and the other 
instead of Christ. Now I've run ahead. When we get to these passages, I'll develop them farther. But I must keep on here. Now, verse 19, "...they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us." Now, John says, the way that you can tell whether one is a child of God is the fact that eventually that man will show his true colors and he will leave the assembly of God. He'll withdraw from the Christians, from a body of believers, and he'll go right back into the world. Now, we saw in Second Peter the parable of the prodigal pig. You see, not only did a son get down in the pig pen, but a little pig, according to Peter, got washed. He says, the sow that was washed. That little girl pig that went up to the father's house, became very religious, got all cleaned up with, you know, a pink bow around her neck, and her teeth were washed with Pepsodent. Well, she didn't like the father's house because she's a pig. And the little pig one day said, I'm going, I'm going to rise and go to my father, my old man. And he was down in a big loblolly of mud. And the little old pig went home, and when he saw the old man, just made a squeal and took a leap and landed in the mud right by the side of him. Why? Because it's a pig. <laughs> they went out from us because they were not of us. You think that's a harsh, cruel statement. But it happens to be a true statement today. Oh, there are many that make professions of being Christian, but they're not really Christians, friends. But you must remember, it was said of Judas, and the Lord said this of him, The hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. Right here at that first communion service, there was a traitor there. It was Judas Iscariot. And he was one that was identified with the group. In John 6, 70, it says, "...have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a demon." Now, he was never anything else. He looked like an apostle. He acted like an apostle. And I think that he had power to perform miracles. He went out with the others. And they were not able to identify him as being a phony. But he was. Now, that's a very solemn and serious statement that's made here. And it's made for you and me today. The Lord Jesus said to that very religious man, You must be born again. He said to Nicodemus that night, Except a man be born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. And John says they went out from us. They were not of us. They looked like it, but they actually were not. And the real test, of course, was the Word of God. And it ought to cause every Christian today, I don't care who you are, including this poor preacher here that's speaking to you today. And the question is, have I really faced up to my sins in the light of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I come to God in repentance, owning my guilt and acknowledging my iniquity 
And have I cast myself upon him and him only for my salvation? Have I evidence in my life of being a regenerate soul of God? Do I love the Word of God? Do I want the Word of God? Is it bread to me? Is it meat to me? Is it drink to me? Do I love the brethren? And do I love the Lord Jesus Christ? These are the things, my friend. And the Word of God enjoins us in this particular connection. And I think it's very important for us. You remember that in Galatians, the sixth chapter, verse 15, Paul makes it very clear. After presenting justification by faith in no uncertain terms, he says, "...but in Christ Jesus..." Neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, you can't even boast of the grace of God and say today, Oh, I don't believe in church membership. I don't believe in baptism. I don't believe in those things. All right, those things are of no avail because you say you don't believe in them. The question is, have you really been born again? Or... Are you one of those that are trusting these things today? My friend, the important question is, are you a new creation in Christ Jesus? And then you remember Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and some of them had reason to believe they might not be children of God. He says in 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verse 5, "...examine yourselves, whether you are in the faith. Prove yourselves." Know ye not yourselves how Jesus Christ is in you, unless you're discredited? Do you really know today that you're a child of God? May I say, friends, this is very important that God's children know these things. Let's look at another verse over in 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, verse 13. Listen to him. He's speaking to believers. Watch. Stand fast in the faith, which you like men, be strong. Friend, how are you doing with the Christian life? Are you really a child of God today? Is there evidence in your life that you are a child of God? I'm not talking about whether you've committed a sin or not. What did you do after you committed the sin? Did you keep on in it? Did you continue on in sin? Well, the son got in a pig pen... But friends, he didn't continue that. That was not his permanent address. If you had mailed him a letter after he'd been there for a few weeks and months, unless the pigs had forwarded it, he wouldn't have got it because that's not his permanent address. He's going home. And the child of God, after he sinned, is going to God with hot tears coursing down his cheek, crying out to God. And my friend, if he doesn't, He's not God's child. God's child today has to hate sin. This light view that we have today is just something that is not quite accurate. And I'm afraid that there are many church members that are just taking it for granted that they're children of God because there's activist termites in the church and just about with the same effect as termites. But let me pass this little story on to you. I've heard it told several different ways. I do not know which way is accurate or not. But years ago in London, down in the slums, there was a woman of the underworld. 
a prostitute. She had a little son. She became terribly sick, and she was frightened because she knew she was dying. And she sent her little son to get a minister to come and, as she put it, to get her in. She told the little fella, you go get a minister to get me in. And the little fella went out looking for a church. He had to go a long ways before he found a very imposing-looking church. He went around to the rectory there in London, and the minister came to the door when he rang the bell. And the minister looked at this little urchin and said, What do you want? My old lady, he says, is dying, and she wants you to come and get her in. Well, the minister thought at first to get her into a hospital, that she was probably drunk somewhere. And he says, why, get some policeman. It's raining tonight, and I don't want to get out, but get some policeman to get her in to her home. And the little fellow says, she's already at home. She's not drunk. She's in her own bed, and she's dying. And she wants somebody to get her in, and she wants me to get a minister. And would you come? And the minister was stunned for a moment because he was a liberal. And he knew that he should go. He couldn't turn down requests like that. So he got his coat and umbrella, and he went with the little fellow, and they walked and walked and came to that very poor section of London and finally found the creaky stairs that led to an upstairs bedroom. And the minister all the way over, he thought, well, what will I say to her? I can't say to her what I've always preach to my people. I've told them that they are people of culture and refinement and that they are to keep that up, of course, and to continue to be very cultured and refined. What in the world can I say? And he said, I can't tell her to reform. She ought to be reformed, but it's too late now. What can I tell her? And he remembered that as a boy that his mother always quoted John 3.16. And in desperation, he got his Bible when he sat down by the side of this woman and turned to John 3.16, and it actually wasn't too familiar to him, and he read it to her. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And the dear woman wanted to go over it. She said, you mean that the type of person I am, all I'd have to do is just trust Jesus? And he said, well, that's what it says here. And it says that God gave his son and that he gave him to die on a cross. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He said, I see that here. So that's what you're to do. And this dear woman... Before she died, right there, she accepted Christ as a Savior. And the preacher that was there told the story afterward. He said, in that night, I not only got her in, but I got myself in. May I say to you, friends, are you sure that you're in? <laughs> are you sure that you've trusted him and that he is your Savior? I know some people are going to write me an ugly letter and say, you've got no right to ask us questions like that because we've been members of the church 30 years. Well, I think that you ought to examine yourself and see whether you're in the faith or not. 
I think it's wonderful to make an inventory and find out where you were. One summer, we didn't know where we were financially because we'd been without an auditor here to help us. And then when we got one, we found out that we thought we were just sailing along on nice blue seas, and we weren't. We were in the red somewhat, and thank the Lord, we got to it in time, and we got out of the red. Thank the Lord for that. But it's because we examined our condition, and we thought we were all right. And friends, I think a great many Christians today, at least church members, they need to examine themselves. Are you really in the faith? You really trust Christ. Somebody says, you're robbing me of my assurance of salvation. My friends, I believe in the security of believers, but I believe in the insecurity of make-believers. And I think that we need to examine ourselves and see what kind of a believer we really are. Now, I'm going to move on down to verse 20. He says, "...but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things." Now, what he means here, and what he's saying by the unction is an anointing. We have an anointing, and that is the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which we are going to see later in this chapter here, that there is an anointing in verse 27. It says, "...but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you." Now, that's the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, every real believer. And the Holy Spirit is able to reveal to him all things. I hath not seen the ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things the Lord has prepared for him. But God hath revealed them unto us by Spirit, so that we have someone dwelling in us that can reveal these things that are in the Word of God to us. And we have an anointing, therefore, so that every person can have the assurance of his salvation. If you really want to do business with God, you really want to get right down to the nitty-gritty with him, come to him and ask for light, ask for guidance, ask for his assurance. Ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. It means all things that you should know as a child of God, their potential. It doesn't mean that you've been given a Ph.D. degree in spiritual things all of a sudden. But it means that by the Holy Spirit you can study the Word of God, and then through the experiences that God sends to you, you have the possibility of growing in these matters. And many a child of God grows in grace and in knowledge of Christ. And I've been amazed at the number of lay people I've met in my ministry. I have told the story before about when I was a student in seminary. It was my first year. It was during the Depression, way back in the late 20s. And I was invited to a little Baptist church in the cotton mill section of Sherman, Texas. And I went up and preached four times that Sunday, and I'll never forget it. The cotton mill hadn't been operating for over a year, and they gave me 30 cents. And I took one of my friends, a fellow student there with me, and I told him on the way back, he says, why are you so quiet? I told him, I says, you know, the offering I got was 30 cents. And he says, well, 
this is a real event for you. This probably will be the only time that you'll ever be paid exactly what you're worth. Thirty cents. But gracious, that had to be spread out over four sermons I gave. But I had dinner, that is, the noon meal that day in a home. And there was an elderly woman there, and everybody called her grandma. And there were about 15 or 20 people there, and I don't think she was the grandma of everybody. And she could not read or write. In fact, she told me that she came out in a covered wagon in the early days, and she said, I loaded the rifle when my husband shot at Indians. And she'd been a real pioneer, but she'd never learned to read or write. And they asked me, they said, would you read something for Grandma? Because she wasn't able to go to church. And so I thought, I'm a first-year seminary student. I'd give this dear lady the benefit of my vast knowledge of Scripture which, by the way, wasn't so vast. But I thought I'll take something easy and familiar. So I took John 14, and I began to read it. And as I went along, I wanted to explain it to Grandma. After all, she couldn't read and write, so I thought I would help her. And I made a comment or two, and she sat there. And I thought she looked a little bored, but after a few minutes, she said, Young man, had you ever noticed this? Frankly, she'd make a comment and bring out something in the passage that I'd never even heard before. In fact, there was no professor at school that had ever mentioned that about that passage of Scripture. And before we got through that chapter, she was telling me and I was listening. And this friend of mine that had gone with me, he was sitting over in the corner. I knew he was going to get me for that afterward. So on the way back that night, he made another comment. My, he says, you sure were helpful to Grandma today. I said, where in the world do you suppose that woman learned so much about John 14? And he said, had it ever occurred to you that maybe the Holy Spirit was her teacher? Maybe that you and I have been listening to the wrong teachers. We need to let the Holy Spirit be our teacher. May I say to you, that's what this verse means here. You have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. That's potential. That's up to you whether you're going to learn or not. Now he says, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth. They had the gospel. They had the truth. But because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. What he's saying is this. You've had the truth, but now lies are coming in. Gnosticism was coming in, and there were many antichrists that were appearing. Now, who is an antichrist? Now, we said just a few words about it. We'll say a little bit more right now. Verse 22, who is a liar? Now, that's John. Well, the one that doesn't tell the truth is a liar. But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Now, may I say to you that a definition now of Antichrist, and it will be the embodiment of the Antichrist, but there are many Antichrists. There were some in that day. There have been some down in our day, and there are many today. Who are they? Easy to recognize those that deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that deny that Jesus, Jesus the man, is 
the Christ, the Messiah, the one that is God, the one whose name is Wonderful, the Counselor, the Mighty God, the one pictured in the Old Testament. And when you deny that, that's Antichrist. Now, may I say that we have, I think, many systems in the world today that deny him. They are against Christ, and they also imitate him. They try to take the place. You have that in the early church. It was Gnosticism. Irenaeus made this statement. He said that they say, that is, the Gnostics, that Jesus was the son of Joseph and born after the manner of other men. That's where Irenaeus identified the Gnostics in his day. And I would say that if you take any of these cults and isms today, liberalism has denied his deity. And that's the reason that, very candidly, I have made the statement, and I don't mind making it again, that Jesus Christ, superstar, is Antichrist. It's not the Jesus of the Bible that is the Savior of the world by any means. And so here, who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, not the Antichrist. There are going to be many Antichrists, and already there were. And the one that denieth the Father and the Son. Now, that will be the sure mark of Antichrist. And there are many of them. And there are many around us today, of course. Now, friends, we come to the 23rd verse of the second chapter of 1 John. Now, he has already told us that he's identified Antichrist for us. Antichrist is the one that denies the Father and the Son. And now he makes it clear in verse 23 here that you can't deny one without denying the other because, you see, the deity of Christ is essential to your salvation and mine because if he's not God, then the man that died on the cross 1,900 years ago cannot be your Savior and mine. In fact, he couldn't be his own Savior because none of us as human beings, can die for the other. But it was necessary for God to become a man in order that you and I might have redemption. Therefore, he says in verse 23, "...whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that confesseth the Son hath the Father also." So that you can see that when you say that you believe in God and deny the deity of Christ, you really don't believe in God, certainly not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one who sent his Son into the world to die for our sins. And he is God. And since he's God, he alone was the one that could make a satisfactory sacrifice to God for our sins. Because had he been anything else, he himself would have been a sinner. Now, whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that confesseth the Son hath the Father also. And we need to emphasize that 
because of the very fact of the importance of it. Now, let me move down to verse 24. "...let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning." In other words, the beginning in John goes back to the incarnation of Christ. Now, John said to those, "...that which you've heard from the beginning, that which you heard concerning his incarnation," and that's in the Gospel of John, "...that which you heard concerning his life, and that which you heard concerning his death, that which you've heard concerning his resurrection." Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Now, it is essential, therefore, to have a faith, a living faith, that rests in the one who came into this earth 1,900 years ago. As John said, the Word became flesh and dwelt here among us, and the Word was made flesh. How tremendous that is. And no one hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son that's in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him, exegeted him. He's led him out where now we can know about God because God has become a man, and that's the only way. You and I could know about him. We know now about God. We can know him. And the important thing, in fact, in this whole section here, is a communion with the Father and with the Son. The emphasis here is not so much having life in Christ through faith in him, but it's now having communion and enjoying that fellowship with him that is so essential. Now, let me move on here. Verse 25, And this is the promise, that he hath promised us even eternal life. Now, this is a very important verse here, because the next verse joins with it. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. In other words... There were those that were now coming along, beginning to deny the Father and the Son, beginning to deny that the Lord Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be. And they were seducing some of those that were professors. And now John says, the thing that you must hold on to is this, that he promised you eternal life if you put your faith in Christ. Now, he says, you don't need to add anything to that. You don't need what the Gnostics were teaching. They pretended to have super-duper knowledge, that they knew a little bit more than anyone else. And I'm afraid today that there's a real danger, actually, in a great many people that are going to so many Bible classes there's a danger of becoming a super-duper saint. A lady said to me the other day, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't appreciate it very much because I know her husband so well, and he's a wonderful Christian. Now, she's been going to Bible classes, and they've been fine. Don't misunderstand me, not criticizing them. But 
She was adopting a very superior attitude toward her husband. And she knew more than he knew, and that she was really the one that could teach him. And very frankly, I don't think she could. I think that he's a very intelligent man, and he's not able to be in as many Bible classes as she is. But what he hears, he takes it down, and it has an effect upon his life. So that there's a real danger of present-day Gnosticism of professing to have a super-knowledge and maybe a super-experience, and that you become a super-duper saint, and there's no one just quite in your class. And that's a dangerous position to come to, because if you come into a knowledge of Christ, and you begin to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Him, you will have the same experience that John the Baptist had. John the Baptist said, He must increase, I must decrease. And I believe that if any man is honest when he studies the Word of God, and I'm getting ready to make a confession to you, and I hope you won't let this out. We're not going to tell anybody except just you folk, and I hope we can just keep it in the family. And it's this. The thing that, in one sense, is a little disturbing to me in my study of the Word of God is that it doesn't reveal how much I know. It reveals how much I don't know and how woefully ignorant I am. I think back over my ministry and things that I'm studying now, and I'm studying the Bible now as I never have in my entire life, but things I thought I knew when I graduated from seminary. Well, I practically knew it all then. There was very little that I thought I needed to learn after that. But very frankly, I thought there were certain things I knew at that time. Well, I'm coming today to find out I didn't know them at all. I thought I did, but I didn't know them at all. And the vast field of knowledge today for the child of God, and it behooves us, friends, to make this matter of coming to know Christ through His Word, make it a serious business, and give it top priority in our lives. That's the thing that's all important. And that's all that John is really saying here. He says, I don't want you to become a super-duper saint. I want you to rest upon these things. Now he's moving into the area where he's going to say to them very definitely that you know him as your Savior. Hold on to that. But now you want to have communion with him and the Father and have fellowship with him and the Father and with other believers. Now notice as he moves on, "...but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him." Now, the important thing to note here is this, that he's not saying we do not need teachers. We do need teachers, or else Paul was certainly wrong in Ephesians when he made the statement that God has given to the church certain men that are gifted, some to teach, some that are evangelists, and some that are shepherds that can minister and counsel folk. 
And he's given these to the church to build up the body of believers. And I think that's important. I think we all need to sit under good teachers. As I look back over my life, I thank God for the godly men that have crossed my pathway. And they are the ones that are responsible, actually, for me being in the ministry. I have above right now this Ampex machine, which is making this tape. I have the pictures of four men, and I keep them right before me all the time. These are four men that when you put them together and their influence on me, it's the reason that I entered the ministry. These men that affected my life. Now, you don't know these men, but I'm going to give you their name. The first man is a man by the name of Joe Boyd in Nashville, Tennessee. He was a layman. When no one else seemed interested in a young fellow who wanted to study for the ministry, this man got interested. And he's actually the man that did the footwork of making it possible for me to have a job to go to college, for me to get a loan to go to college and seminary. And he followed my ministry, and I was his pastor for three years. And he was a wonderful man. I thank God for him. And next to him is the pastor there. And I followed him, Dr. A.S. Allen. He's one of those unsung preachers that you don't hear about today. But he was one of the greatest preachers I ever listened to. Then next to him is Dr. Lewis Fair Chafer, the founder and president, first president of Dallas Theological Seminary. And my, when I heard him, <laughs> that's what turned me on. I said, this is the thing I want. And then next to him is probably the brainiest man that I think I ever met, Dr. Albert Dudley, the man that had great influence upon the turn that I took in the ministry to become an expository preacher and not to get up and give little sermonettes to Christianettes as a preacherette. But I thank God for him and for all these men. So that John is not saying these are not essential, but he's saying something here that's important for God's children today. But the anointing which ye have received. Now, we've seen that before when we were talking back about the unction of the Holy One, the unction of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of his ministries, that the Holy Spirit is to teach us. He's able to guide us into all truth. The Lord Jesus, the great teacher, he says, I'm going to send you the real teacher, the Holy Spirit. When he's come, he'll lead you and guide you into all truth, that is, all that you'll be able to contain and all that I'm able to contain. Now, there ought to come a day when you and I can stand on our two feet as far as the Word of God is concerned and give a reason, as Peter says, for the hope that is in us. We ought to be able to do that. And there is a grave danger in this, and I want to say this rather carefully. I know people and I've known them now for periods of 30 years. And they have been going to Bible classes, and they've been studying the Bible, but they never get anywhere. And they are the ones that bring Bible teaching into disrepute. Because I meet some of these people, I've seen them at Bible conferences in the summertime. I've seen them for 30 years. 
And they are today right where they were 30 years ago. As Paul said to young preacher Timothy, silly women laden with sins, ever learning, but never coming to a knowledge of the truth. They don't seem quite to arrive, but they always got their Bible and they're always writing a few little notes down, but they come up to you at a summer conference over a year ago where I was speaking. I had a woman that came up to me, and I do declare that she asked me the same question 25 years ago at the same conference and had a notebook there, and she's still taking it down, ever learning, but never coming. In other words, we ought to get to the place where the Spirit of God is our teacher. How many of you, when you study the Word of God, ask the Spirit of God to teach you and to lead you And if you don't understand it the first time, get down on your knees and say, Lord, I missed the point. I don't understand this. Make it real to me. I want this to be real to me. Now, friends, that's important. That's what he's saying here. The anointing which you have received abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. Now, there's certain things the Spirit of God can make very real to you teaching you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And that's the reason that the Lord Jesus could say that when the Antichrist does finally come, that he would deceive the very elect if it were possible. But it's never possible to deceive the elect. Antichrist will not deceive the elect that are left on the earth at that time. And today, the Antichrist will not deceive. I know a couple, they were just saved, and they got in a liberal church. And when I finally met them, why, this is the thing that they said to me. They said, look, we worked our way down Wilshire Boulevard, going from church to church till we got to your place. And we knew we were not hearing the truth of God, but we couldn't put our finger on it. We knew it was wrong, but we didn't know how it was wrong. They were just new converts. And I think God's little children are going to follow the pattern the Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. And they're not going to follow a false shepherd. They hear his voice. And the Spirit of God can be a teacher. That's a great comfort today, friends. And we need to test every teacher by that. It'd be well if you tested me by that. Ask the Holy Spirit. Is this thing that McGee's teaching, is that the truth of God? Make it real to my heart, too. I want to know whether it's true or not. And this is very important. Now, verse 28. And now, little children, and here we go again, dear little barns, little born ones, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, this is for fellowship. Again, I want to repeat that. To abide in him is to live in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to abide in him. It means to have communion with him. Now, he says, abide in him. Now, when he appears, you can have confidence. There are great many people who are talking about the coming of Christ and get rather excited about it. 
but it's sure going to be embarrassing for them. They won't have any confidence. They'll be ashamed before him at his appearing. Why? Well, because of their lives. The Lord Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me. And they're going to look around for their reward and find out they haven't got any. As Paul, you remember, said, they're going to be saved so as by fire. But what their works will be consumed by fire because they're made of wood, hay, and stubble. It's very important today to have a life that commends the gospel. And what John is saying here, he's saying actually the same thing that Peter told us, that false doctrine and false living go together. And true doctrine and true living go together. And every now and then you hear one of these cult leaders, and he's in trouble, He's guilty of adultery, or he's guilty of taking money that doesn't belong to him, or guilty of beating some person out of money that he should not. Why? False doctrine, friends, leads to false living. True doctrine leads to true living. And there's nothing that will affect your life like the knowledge that you're going to stand in the presence of Christ and give an account of our work. Every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and Paul says we'll be judged according to our works. Now, salvation's already been settled because we're his children in his presence. And it's not a question whether you saved or lost. It's a question whether you're going to get a reward or not, or any recognition or not. And there'll be some there that won't get any recognition. And Paul could say, no, in the terror of the Lord, we persuade man." The rapture is not going to be such a thrilling event, friends, for a great many believers because of the lives they live down here. Now, he says here, this verse 29, the last verse, "...if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him." That's the final proof. That is the litmus paper that is put in to tell whether it's the acid or base. And it'll sure tell every time. The Word of God is the real text. So until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Now today, friends, as we've indicated, I'd like to just take a backward look at this chapter that we've come through, First John, the second chapter, because it's one of the great chapters of the Bible. A student in a seminary wrote me some time ago and asked me to submit what I thought was the ten greatest chapters in the Bible. Well, I didn't answer the young fellow's letter by giving him ten chapters. I answered him by telling him that there were quite a few chapters that would have to be left out if you just picked ten, and it would be impossible to pick the ten greatest chapters, because as I go through the Bible, seems to me like every chapter becomes the greatest chapter. And I'd have to include First John, the second chapter, as one of the great chapters of the Bible. But there's so many others, you just couldn't put it in ten at all. Now, the important thing that we have seen in this chapter 2 here, as we got down in it, is that God is love. And he made it very clear at first that we can know that we're God's children. We can have fellowship with him. 
spite of the fact that we're his feeble, frail, faltering, falling little children, we can still have fellowship with him because the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. And we have an advocate up there with the Father, and he's for us. He's on our side today. Then we saw beginning in chapter 2 at verse 3 that God is love. And this is the very heart of this epistle, that God is love. In fact, the matter it's mentioned here, I think, about 33 times. And it's very important to note this, and it divides something like this, how the dear children may have fellowship with each other. And that is a very important thing. And of course, that's by walking in love. In other words, the little children must recognize that they are called today to live a different kind of a life. They've now been given a new nature. They now can live for God. And this is the test. Obedience is the test of life, whether we really have it or not. And if we keep his commandments, and John made it very clear about that, and not only his commandments, but his word. And his word means we're willing to go even farther than anything that he has commanded. And obedience is therefore the test of life. Now, there's a difference between law and grace that's brought out here. The law said, if a man will do, he shall live. But grace is the opposite of that. It says, if a man lives, he will do. That is, he must have a life from God before he can live for God. And he can't, by the old nature, live for God. Therefore, this is the radical difference between law and grace. The law says, do, do. But grace says, believe and live. And it's different approach to the same goal, of course. And the only problem is law never did work for man because the old nature, it's impossible to please God. We all come short of the glory of God. And the real test was, do I delight in the will of God? Do I love his commandments? And if you are a child of God, you've got a new nature. Now you want to please him. And it's been put in this little jingle, something like this. My old companions, fare you well. I cannot go with you to hell. I mean with Jesus Christ to dwell. I will go with him and tell. Well, may I say that that may be a very poor piece of poetry, but it certainly expresses it as it really is. You cannot today talk about having fellowship with God and with other believers and live in sin. The writer of the Proverbs made it very clear in Proverbs 28:13. He says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And though we know that the blood of Christ does indeed cover us from all sin, you and I can't walk and live in sin and have fellowship with God and have fellowship with other believers. And if you and I have a life that 
commands the gospel. It's another assurance that's given to us. And I personally don't think you can have real assurance. That is, down deep in the heart, unless you are obedient unto God. And I believe that you can know beyond the peradventure of a doubt that you are a child of God. And it's not presumptuous. It's not audacious. You're not being arrogant. It's not effrontery. It's not a gratuitous assumption. It's not overconfidence. It's not self-deception. It's not wild boasting. It's not self-assertive. In fact, it's true humility, knowing that you are saved and eternal security of the believer are not the same. They're not synonymous, though they are related. The Lord Jesus said, "'My sheep hear my voice,' and if you are his sheep, you'll hear his voice. And you're not boasting, you see, when you say that you know you're saved. What you're saying is, I have a wonderful shepherd. You're not saying you are wonderful. You're saying your shepherd is wonderful." And that is the important thing. And he says that my sheep shall never, never perish. What a wonderful truth that is that we have. Now, as we move through this particular section here, and I'm anxious to dwell a little on the last part of it, he makes the statement in verse 21, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. He's not writing something new for these folks. That is the thing that he's saying here in verse 21. It's not to give them something new. They knew the gospel. What he's doing is writing to them, I think, for twofold purpose. One is to encourage them, and another to warn them, because there was false teaching going about in that day. Because the very next verse makes it clear. He says, "...who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ." And the language here is much stronger than I gave it the other day. "...who is the liar." In other words, all lies are summed up in the one who is the prince of liars, and that's the devil. But there is coming a man, that's Satan's man, and he is the liar. And how do you identify him? Who is the liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And the mark of the Antichrist is one that denies the Father, and the Son. That is the mark of him. I want to make this statement, and I don't like always to quote like this, but many years ago, Dr. William E. Hawking, who was a professor of philosophy at Harvard University, wrote The Living Religions and a World Faith. And he was chairman of that layman's committee, which a great many call the Betrayal Committee, years ago. That was uh, way before many of you that are listening were, I suppose, old enough to remember. And he made this statement, and I'm quoting him now, God is in his world, but Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad are in their little private closets, and we shall thank them 
but never returned to them. Now you can see here that this is just a direct rank denial of the deity of Christ. And when he denies the Son, he denies the Father. Because the next verse, verse 23, John says, "...whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. He that confesseth the Son hath the Father also." You can't deny Jesus Christ and then accept God. Say, yes, I believe in God. You can't do that. The Word of God won't let you do it at all. And that was my reason for making some strong statements about men of the past. In the great Riverside Church in New York City, when Dr. Harry Emerson Fosdick was the pastor, here was the cover page of a bulletin at that time. And I'm quoting now. Whoever you are that worship here, in whatever household of faith you were born, whatever creed you now profess, if you come to this sanctuary to seek the God in whom you may believe or to rededicate yourself to the God in whom you do believe, you're welcome. And then it goes on with a lot about peace and the fatherhood of God, which I'm nauseated when I read this far, so I just don't read the rest of it. May I say to you, it sounds sweet and flowery, and it appeals to the natural man. But that's the whole point of John. John says, beware of this. This is Antichrist. And who is the liar? Well, the one that denies the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. And when you deny one, you deny the other, and he makes that very clear. Now, we're going to talk a little later on about the Antichrist because there are two other references to him that we have in John. And John is the only one that uses the term Antichrist. Now, will you listen as we move on again? Verse 24, "...let that therefore abide in you which you've heard from the beginning." That is, that which they heard from the very beginning when the apostles began to preach the gospel, if that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Now, that's the reason I read this testimony from this man who heard our radio program 20 years ago. And I'm not going to tell you about his life before then, But he heard it down in San Diego, and right there and then he accepted Christ as his Savior. And God has put him head of the servicemen's center, and it's one of the finest in the country, in fact, in the world today. And he has been responsible to lead just literally thousands of sailor boys and soldier boys to the Lord down through the years. And I thank God for that, friends, because... That's the real test. John says, if you abide in him, then that is the evidence that you're a child of God. Now he says, verse 25, and this is the promise that he has promised us, even eternal life. And by the way, the only kind of life that God offers is eternal life. And if you lose it tomorrow, next week, or next year, it wasn't eternal life that you got. It's some other kind, but not eternal because it just falls short of that. Now he says here, verse 26, 
These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. And that means actually to lead you astray, to lead you from the truth, if you please. And I like the word seduce. I think that's as good as any because it applies another way in the physical realm and it's the exact thing in the spiritual realm. That is, that you absolutely lead a person to commit spiritual adultery when you lead them away from the truth. Verse 27, "...but the anointing which you received of him abideth in you." Now, since I made the broadcast the last time, I've been doing some study of this word anointing. And it is the Greek word charisma. We speak of a certain speaker today, or a certain person, a certain preacher, that he has charisma. And if he doesn't have it, he doesn't get very far today. I'll have to admit that. But the word literally means, and I went back to my classical dictionary, and I must say I was shocked and disappointed. It means to smear on. (laughs) It means to take an ointment and just smear it on. Actually, when you take Vicks salve or mentholatum and put it on your nose or your chest at night, you're anointing yourself. You just smear it on, you know. And that's the word, charisma. And it means that, and that literally. And by the way, I've checked with Dr. Trench and Dr. Vinson, two outstanding Greek scholars, and they come up with the same meaning, the old classical meaning of smear on and That is really what it is. Now, what does it mean, though, for us today as believers? Well, Israel, back in the Old Testament, God had the priests anointed with oil. And that anointing indicated in a physical way that they were specially endued by the Holy Spirit to perform a certain function. Now, that is the same thing that it means here today. But the anointing which you've received of him, that is, you and I have received an anointing of God. When you're saved of God, one of the things that the Spirit of God does for you, he anoints you. And he anoints you to understand divine truth, which you couldn't understand before. But the anointing which you've received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught ye, ye shall abide in him. Now, that means that there has been given to you an anointing whereby you are unable to understand all truth. Because the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. And eye has not seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love it. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. And that's the anointing of the Holy Spirit for a believer. And that's one reason that we're encouraging folk on the radio to get into the Word of God themselves and study it. And I read a letter from this dear lady. She listens to the tape that she made of our program again and again. She reads it, and all of a sudden her eyes are open, and she sees the Lord Jesus in a new way. What's happened? 
She's had an anointing. Now, I believe in that kind of an anointing. But I don't believe in a lot of this silly stuff that's going on today that's purely emotional. If it doesn't enlighten you to understand the Word of God and to love it and to love the Lord Jesus, friend, I don't care how much whoopee you put into your religion. You can just whoop it up and have all kinds of emotion. But that's no good. It's enlightenment that we need today. Now, he goes on here. And he says, verse 28, And now, little children, and I love that, now, little children, abide in him. And it's not really the imperative here. It's really the indicative. You are abiding in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And that's a good translation. However, actually, it's if he appears. And the if there is not one of doubt. In other words, the if here hasn't anything in the world to do with the fact. It's not a doubt of the fact. It is the uncertainty as to the circumstances. In other words, all the way through, it's made very clear that although we may have an anointing, you don't know when Jesus is coming. That's one thing that he's reserved for himself. And why? Well, he says this, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And I think a Christian ought to live in the light of the imminent coming of Christ. If he might come today, right at this moment, well, if he comes at this moment, he'll catch me making a tape, and that'll be fine. I hope he'll come at a time like that. Well, I don't know. But there are times that maybe when I get behind that woman driver that won't let me around, and I tell her what I think of her, and he came at that moment, I might be ashamed at his appearing. So you and I need to be living in the light of this all the time. Now he says, if we know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. In other words... God's children look like the Father. They take after the Father. And if they don't take after the Father, they must not be the Father's children. And it's just as simple as that.